Yarastan's fourth letter. Dear Sophia, the arrival of your letter coincided with Jasna Zbroka's visit to our house. Jasna, Myrna, and I read your letter simultaneously. Each of us waited anxiously for the others to finish a page and pass it on. Each of us was fascinated, surprised, disappointed, and angered by your account. My situation has changed considerably since I last wrote you. I've gone back to work at the carton plant. As a result, Yara now does most of the housework as well as the cooking. On the day your letter came, Jasna helped Yara prepare a surprise banquet for Myrna and me to celebrate a victorious strike that had just taken place at their school. When Jasna started to read your letter, she exclaimed, They remember me! She was flattered. But the more she read, the more confused she became. Quote, I had never known what had happened to Sophia and Louisa after they were arrested 20 years ago, and I can't understand this argument she describes. Were they released before their terms were over? Jasna asked me. I told her you and Louisa had spent only two days in jail, and she was as stunned as I had been. Two days? Even I was in prison for a year, and I didn't have a notion of what I was doing. Please understand, Sophia, that our astonishment about this fact is only natural. After all, Jasna spent a year in prison, and I spent four. Louisa is extremely unfair when she interprets my references to George Alberts as accusations. I'm not accusing. I'm simply very curious about the fact that George Alberts managed to have both of you released after only two days in jail. What power did George Alberts have to arrange your release? One of the comments Jasna made while reading the rest of your letter was, What a strange world that must be. I can't imagine what I would have done there. When she finished reading the letter, she said, Sophia and Louisa don't seem to have any idea what happened here after they left. We are all bothered by what Jasna called your strange world. The whole system of alternatives and choices you describe seems strange and unreal. The choices you say you faced are incomprehensible to me. Yet these choices seem to be the source of your attitude towards me, towards people you knew 20 years ago, and toward the pedagogues who were your university friends. You say that at one point in your life, you faced a choice between Louisa, Ron, and the university, and you chose the university. You say you rejected Louisa's life, the life of a wage worker, a life of boredom without any prospects, sustained only by the dream that wage labor will soon end. You've eliminated some of the contradictions and anachronisms. That leaves the part of Louisa's life that consists of daily wage labor. In what sense have you rejected this? Wage labor is still the condition for your physical survival. In fact, you admit that the evening classes you teach are sold activity in the same sense as Louisa's factory work. Something is wrong with your description of your alternatives. You didn't reject Ron's actual life, but your picture of his life. You made this clear by describing Tina's and Sabina's views of him in addition to yours. From then, and also from your earlier letters, I got a view of an individual who uncompromisingly rejected repressive relations and tried to overcome them, even if his attempts seemed childish and directionless. You depict an individual who didn't want to overcome constraints, who wanted to adapt to repression and derive personal benefit from it. And after this misleading description, you tell us you chose to live your life among journalists. You chose to spend your life among people I consider opportunists, and in your letter you identified those journalists with people we knew 20 years ago in the carton plant. You made that identification, not I. It's ironic that the arrival of your letter coincided with Jasna's visit. After our banquet, Jasna gave us detailed accounts of the people you've come to consider your models. Most of the people we used to know happen to be people who've been willing to sell not only the motion of their limbs, but their will and their consciousness for a wage. I'd call them opportunists. Before telling you what we learned from Jasna, I'd like to describe two events which made Jasna's narrative particularly significant to me. The first is my recent return to work, and the second is Zednik Tabarkin's visit a few days before Jasna's. 
In the context of these events, Jasna's account made me realize that you and I experience two completely different worlds. It's not clear to me what place I occupy in your world, but it's becoming clear to me what place you occupy in mine. It's the same place you and I occupied 20 years ago during our activity in the carton plant. But during those 20 years, the carton plant changed, and I changed. I've come to realize that my life was derailed precisely at the intersection which you consider the fulfillment of your life. I flirted with your world much the same way as Tina accused you of having flirted with Ron's world. In this respect, at least I'm not comparable to Ron. He never accompanied you into your world. It was you who intruded into his. Unlike Ron, I did enter into your world. Louisa introduced me to it. Today I view that experience as alien to me. My life has veered off its course. Thanks to my encounters during my first prison term with individuals like Manuel and Zednik, I eventually woke up and realized I was heading towards my destruction as a human being. Today I'm ashamed of the fact that I once took part in that type of activity. My correspondence with you is forcing me to deal with that moment of my life. A few days after I sent you my previous letter, I accepted the, quote, invitation of the workers at the carton plant. I got my old job back. This invitation is a direct result of the ferment that's taking place here. Before the political police was suspended two months ago, I was unemployable, and as a result, when I was released from prison, Myrna merely acquired another burden to support with her job at the clothing factory. Of course I helped prepare meals, clean the house, and fetch the groceries while Myrna was at work and Yara in school, but this didn't ease Myrna's burden significantly. My unemployment pension didn't pay for even a quarter of the food I myself consumed. The invitation extended to me by the workers in the carton plant isn't only flattering, but is also a solution to a pressing need. A few days ago, I brought home my first weekly wage, which was twice as large as Myrna's despite the fact that she's been working at the clothing factory for 13 years. We immediately had a discussion almost identical to one we'd had several years ago. I suggested she could finally quit her job. Myrna emphatically said she wouldn't dream of quitting. Quote, it's only thanks to my job that Yara and I survived during all those years you were in prison, and I don't intend to throw that income away just because our situation during one week has been different. The last time you made that suggestion, you were jailed a few days later. To Myrna, our present situation is an abnormal state of affairs, and she's convinced it will only be temporary. Prison and poverty is our normal state of affairs. My task at the carton plant is the same as it was 20 years ago when I worked with Louisa and met you. I operate a newer model of the press that prints labels on cartons. The old press must have at last given out. There were openings for several other tasks. All the openings have been created by the departure of police agents, or rather of workers who were paid by the police to spy on other workers. I could have chosen another task. But there was no real reason to choose between the tasks, since they all require one and the same act, the exchange of my living time for a wage. Since all the tasks in question required the same hours and paid the same wages, my choice between them could only be whimsical. It was on the basis of whims that I chose. One of my whims was to familiarize myself with a task I had never performed before. Another whim was to return to the machine I had operated at the time of your life's key experience. I chose in favor of the second whim thinking that the familiarity of my motions and my surroundings would remind me of the experiences and the people you've carried in your head for the past 20 years. The strike I described in my letter ended soon after I wrote you. It ended with a compromise. The plants manager agreed to accept a union representative elected by the workers, who in turn dropped their demand to elect a different union representative each month, as well as their original demand to rotate the post among all the workers in alphabetical order. I was disappointed by their compromise with the manager. I argued that such a partial victory was actually a defeat because compromising with the manager meant recognizing the legitimacy and authority of the management. 
Several workers said they agreed, but argued that in conditions of the present ferment, when much more would become possible, it was necessary to proceed with caution, since otherwise we might cause a field of possibilities to close prematurely. I argued that caution was the first step towards defeat, and expressed the view that the manager should have been ousted along with the union representative, that both posts should be rotated alphabetically or eliminated altogether, and that we should examine our field of possibilities only after this much had been accomplished. I was told that a position like mine had been defended, and that the overwhelming majority had been opposed to it. Several workers told me the view of the majority. Quote, it is essential to see what other workers do in other factories, to wait and see if they succeed, and then to proceed along similar lines. If we run ahead of all the rest, we'll soon be all alone, and by ourselves, we won't get much further. I disagree with this attitude, but during these days, such waiting isn't an altogether passive activity. Ever since I've returned to work, I've become intensely aware of changes taking place all around me, not only at the factory, but also at home, in other plants, in streets of the city. I have to admit that I've come to feel the same mixture of daring and caution expressed by the workers at the carton plant. Daring and caution are such miserable words. My sensitivity to words comes mainly from Zednik to Barkin. Already when I knew him in prison, he understood the ways in which language was used to deform reality. He has helped me understand that words can't communicate realities like the ones we're currently experiencing here. Words can only refer to things or conditions which have a certain degree of performance, or which at least recur periodically. There can be no words to describe a condition which never existed before, which changes from one moment to the next, and which has no known stages or outcome. Even the word revolution is miserable because it conveys nothing more than a summary of past events known as revolutions, events which have nothing in common with the present. What I'm experiencing can't be expressed by words like daring and caution. The condition I'm describing isn't inexpressible. It isn't a mystical experience. It's an experience shared by thousands of people who are in fact expressing themselves, many for the first time in their lives. But the communication has not been taking place only through words. The words acquire their meanings from motions, acts, and steps. The words by themselves only refer to other conditions, earlier periods, and even when they're used in the context of the present ferment, they suggest faulty analogies to earlier conditions. What I mean by daring is a readiness to walk into terrain which none of us explored before. What I meant by caution is the perception that our ability to approach this terrain grows only to the extent that all those like us approach it with equal daring. We're reaching for a field of possibilities that can be reached only if we move together as we've never moved before. We proceed with caution because those who move too far ahead will be caught without a lifeline to the rest. What I think is taking place around me is an advance consisting of small steps taken by all simultaneously. Each small step creates the conditions for taking the next. Any move that prevents the continued advance of all cuts off the possibility of further advance by any. All around me, human beings are attempting to come to life as human beings, as universal individuals, as species beings, each advancing with all and all with each. One day 20 years ago, while I was running the same machine at the same plant, I thought the epic of wage labor had suddenly come to an end. I responded by formulating slogans, printing them on signs, and displaying the signs. During the past week, I've experienced a far greater tumult, but I've felt no impulse to print or carry signs with slogans. I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago, the person you knew. My commitment to slogans, words, programs, abstractions, on signs, was a commitment to death. 20 years ago, I was the victim of a mystification. I began with vague yearnings for free activity. I began with a longing for freely chosen projects carried out within a community that made the projects possible and appreciated them. But instead of taking steps with those around me to realize my desires, I transformed my desires into what seemed to be the first step toward the realization, namely into a program of action. 
But by this transformation, I negated my real desires. I replaced them with ideas, with words, with notions in my brain. Instead of a life, I had a credo. Instead of taking steps with other people toward real projects carried out during our living moments of time, I took steps to convert other people to my credo, my religion, my words. I replaced the concrete practical activity of the whole human being with merely mental activity, with activity that took place inside my mind, with combinations of written letters or spoken sounds, namely with non-activity. I inverted my urge to live and turned it into its opposite. My desire for liberated activity became a belief in liberated activity. My longing for human community was replaced by a longing for a community of believers, a religious community, a community of converts to my credo. And instead of finding myself among living, independent, and creative individuals, I found myself in the frock of a priest in the midst of a flock. It has taken me 20 years to realize that I had been a priest, even if a heretical one, of what must surely be humanity's last religion, that religion of liberation from the illusions of religion, that religion which was used by a group of pedagogues to establish unprecedented power over populations who had desired, not the words of the credo, but the world those words seemed to suggest. Today, like 20 years ago, we're daily bombarded with slogans and programs, with platforms and reform, with revolutions ever so carefully worked out on paper by those who live in paper worlds. But today, I'm not among those printing or carrying posters with slogans, nor among those arguing in defense of one or another platform. In the framework of your world, I've joined the ranks of the inarticulate. I can't formulate either my goals or my means. I can tell you neither where I'm going nor how I'll get there. Yet I feel more vibrant, more alive, than I felt when I thought I knew my direction and my destination, because I had words for them. I feel alive precisely because I don't know what the next moment will bring. Time has once again become a dimension that reveals possibilities and has ceased to be a dreary schedule of expected events. I came to life when the events I had learned to expect suddenly stopped recurring. Only a few months ago, Yara took part in a completely unexpected demonstration. A few weeks ago, workers invited me to join them. A week ago, those workers ousted the, their union representative. This week, we elected one from among ourselves to replace the ousted official. Next week, we may learn that the workers of a neighboring factory have started tearing down the factory walls. And a month from now, we might invite our neighbors, especially the children, to our factory to begin dismantling the machinery into as many pieces as Sabina's friend, the car thief, dismantled a car. At that point, we might begin an altogether different life on a terrain from which every trace of our former activity has been removed. A human life might begin, inhibited by no barrier external to the developing individual. The realization of one's potentialities would then be accompanied by the enjoyment of the infinite potentialities realized by all those around one. Such a prospect cannot be the program of an individual or a group, and it cannot be articulated. It is not a religion to which people are to be converted. It is a practice which I and those around me are trying to invent. Although I sense that we're moving, I still perform the familiar motions at my press. I go home after work, and I return to work the following morning. The contradiction makes me tense. It's a tension I share with all those around me. At any moment, the regularity might end and we'll plunge forward and cross a frontier we can't see today. Our willingness to cross that frontier is what I call daring. But there's also caution. There's apprehension. My heart beats faster, and I feel dizzy and nauseated. The anticipation is accompanied by a certain fear. I know, and those around me know, that the conditions which open up a possibility for a new life also give rise to forces which negate life. Human life itself has this double character. Growth takes place through cell division, through the realization of the potentialities carried within each cell. Yet the ugliest form of death also takes place through cell division. 
Such death is also a growth, one that annihilates potentiality and replaces living cells with monstrosities. All around me, people are trying to move to a ground on which the specific potentialities of each individual can develop, like plants seeking sunlight and moisture. And life-negating forces are accompanying every move we make. Just as the power of one cell to split into two is the power that turns against the further division of living cells, so the power that enables us to move together out of slavery to a terrain where the free development of each individual becomes possible is the power that turns against our ability to move at all. The power to conceptualize and communicate, the power that enables us to move together as a community, is the very power that turns against us and deprives us of community. The reality we strive to reach comes back to us several times a day in the form of a concept, a substanceless, unreal thing, a mere combination of words. I think that up to now we've steered clear of these traps. I think we're still alive. But the traps are heavily camouflaged, and we still aren't very practiced in recognizing them. At any moment, instead of taking another step forward, we might again blindly confuse the concept with the reality, and again waste ourselves reaching out for nothing. If that should happen once again, then our present ferment will again give rise to that negative cell division, that deformed development of monstrosities which exterminate our real desires. If we recoil from leaping into the unknown and again take refuge in the concept, will plunge right back to our starting point. The deadliest of the traps is being set by those who are transforming the leap into a phrase, by those who are naming our destination and transforming our real desires into their political program. If we again recoil from real motion and develop and replace it with the motion and development of concepts in the head of priests, we'll only produce another religion with its church and its priests. We would again cease to be the agents of our own struggle our desires would again become disembodied concepts carried in the heads of intellectuals. Politics. That's the religion of today. That's the cancer that annihilates every possibility of community and puts an end to every period of ferment. This deformity divides and multiplies precisely during moments of ferment. Because it's unnatural, it outruns our natural development of capacities. It plants itself at all intersections long before we reach them. Political militants are its missionaries. Committed intellectuals are its priests. The state is its church. Like all religions, it transforms the human community into a herd. Its agents, their organizers and pedagogues, are the spiritual leaders of flocks of animals. It grows, like its biological analog, inside the very body it attacks. It reproduces itself within the living members of the human community, extinguishing them as living beings, annihilating the very possibility of community. Its instruments are the entire armory of life-destroying gadgets devised by technology. Everything that can serve to police a herd, from bombs to walkie-talkies, including the newspapers that proliferate the words and the loudspeakers that magnify the voices of the high priests. Contrary to what you think, I don't see your newspaper activity as similar to the ferment surrounding me, but as activity which can only annihilate the ferment. We all carry the possibility as well as the negation within ourselves. At work, we'll listen to the radio all day. Even though each of us is nervously anticipating our next concrete step, we nevertheless feel exhilarated when the words of a politician seem to express the exact nature of the step we long to take. We applaud phrases like new democracy or new socialism or genuine workers' councils. We walk into the politicians' traps like newborn children who have learned nothing from countless previous generations. While applauding the speaker or praising the writer, we momentarily forget that we haven't been longing for a new phrase, but for a new life. We forget that we've only just begun to explore a new possibility the possibility of creating the world ourselves. When we applaud, we again become the lifeless globs of organic matter we've been nearly every moment of our normal lives. We cheer the pedants, and we're again helpless, 
like the spectators of a sporting match rooting for a team. We're hypnotized by the bouts and struggles among the concepts. We passively admire reflections of our own real longings, and we passively admire the politicians who return our longings to us in the form of images. That's why we feel tense. I'm convinced that the present ferment carries real possibilities for life. But I'm also aware that every time we take a step, we're surrounded by the ideological birds of prey who feed on our possibilities, fill themselves with concepts of our desires, and re-enslave us with the beautiful combinations of words which seem to depict the world we failed to realize. A few days before Jasna's visit, I had a very stimulating discussion with Zednik Tabarkin. When I first met Zednik, during my first prison term, he was intensely interested in everything I told him about the workers' struggle with which Louisa had familiarized me, the struggle in which she, Manuel, Titus Zebrin, and George Alberts took part when you were two years old. When Zednik visited a few days ago, he made several comparisons to the earlier struggle which have helped me understand some characteristics of the present situation. I told Zednik that in recent years, I had completely discarded Luis's view of that struggle, the view I had expressed when Zednik and I were in prison together. I summarized Manuel's analysis of those events. Zednik said he had long suspected that something like Manuel's analysis had been missing from my earlier accounts. Quote, I found your earlier stories exciting because they justified my attachment to the Union, he told me. But when I began to re-examine my commitment, I also became suspicious of your account. The union you described so enthusiastically was led by politicians. Those politicians probably expressed the urges of workers more accurately than any previous group of politicians, if words can ever express real urges accurately. Workers accepted the politicians as their spokesmen. This is why the workers were defeated on the day after their victory. This is why the working population came to life only for a day, the day of the rising against the generals. At the very moment of victory, the Union consolidated the power it had already established over the workers. The working people were re-enslaved before they had the time to realize that for 24 hours they had begun to live without chains. Zednik contrasted that situation with the ferment surrounding us here today. Quote, Our present situation is unique. When the ferment began, all politicians, organized intellectuals, and bureaucrats of liberation were completely discredited. He also contrasted the origins of the present ferment to the origins of the earlier rising. Quote, we weren't suddenly attacked by the military, and consequently we didn't have to concentrate all our energy on a single act of self-defense. We've had time to explore new ground, to consider alternatives, to move ahead slowly, absorbing the significance of each step. We weren't attacked during one day, but over a period of 20 years. Those who attacked us weren't army generals but every species of representative of the working class, of revolution, of liberation, of self-determination that has been coughed up by history. Consequently, although our steps have been small and undramatic, we've moved on our own and not under the hegemony of politicians. Instead of being attacked, we were suddenly let free. The repressive power of all representatives was suddenly suspended. Unlike the workers who were attacked, we've had a chance to rise and stretch, to test the abilities of our unused limbs and to explore our ability to act communally. We haven't moved far, but we've moved on our own. I expressed misgivings about the rate at which we were moving and about the fact that the politicians were moving much faster than the rest of the population. Zednik brushed my arguments aside. Quote, you don't seem to realize that this is one of the few times in all history where a population has moved without politicians. I don't want to say the recuperators are absent. You're perfectly right. They're all around us. Every day a new group of aspiring bureaucrats presents a new program in the press and on the radio. Every day a new speaker tours the factories, schools, and meeting houses. Yes, they're omnipresent, but they're not omnipotent. That's why there's a new program and a new speaker every day. 
Not a single group among them has established its hegemony over the population. People haven't been infected by a single politician's credo. The politicians are moving fast, but the people are staying clear of them. The steps being taken may be small, but they're real. They're taking place in this concrete world and not in an organization's program. The politicians are all discredited. Due to the ideological character of the regime we've experienced for the past 20 years, ideologists and theorists as such, politicians as such, have been discredited. Don't exaggerate the applause speakers are getting. There's nothing wrong with applauding a good speech. The applause only expresses appreciation for the speaker's talent as a speaker. The fact that people applaud doesn't mean they're being hypnotized. I told Zenik that only the recognizable politicians of the old regime had been discredited. I said that all types of politicians with a new face have been transforming the present ferment into their profession and that at least the workers at my plant were not altogether hostile to such new politicians. I admitted that as yet there were no large numbers of people repeating the formulas of any politician, but I said I didn't exclude the possibility that one of those new faces would, quote, realize our goals by installing himself in the state apparatus. Zednik thought I was unjustifiably pessimistic. You're too much of a Cassandra, he told me. It is, of course, true that only one variant of the theory of the proletariat reigned supreme during the past 20 years, but I'm convinced that the rule of this variant discredited all the variants of the theory of the proletariat, from the tyrannical variant to the self-determined variant. Today, everyone sees through the absolute, omniscient, and omnipotent embodiment of the proletariat. Maybe some people aren't as overtly hostile to the other versions because they haven't had to live under them, but no one can help recognizing them as variations on the same theme. Your view is extremely pessimistic. If humanity had to experience every, every single variant of representation before it rejected all of them, it would never emerge from its morass. I think you're wrong. I think the experience with one variant has taught us lessons about all of them. I think humanity is finally rejecting what has always been an impossible project, the project of representation. The present proliferation of major and minor pharaohs around the world is the final and ludicrous stage of that impossible project. My life can't be lived as representation. My representative can't realize my aspirations, take my steps, or engage in my actions. The pharaohs are the final and definitive proof of the impossibility of representation. I think we've all finally learned what took me so long to learn, namely that I'm robbed of my enjoyment if my representative enjoys himself for me, that my hunger remains when he eats for me, that I don't express myself when he speaks for me, that my mind and my imagination stagnate when he thinks for me and decides for me, that I lose my life when he lives for me. I agreed with Zednik, but I still had misgivings. I told him that he had gotten his insights from the very specific experiences which had not been shared by many people, that the mystifications which he had seen through were not necessarily as transparent to everyone else. What are you suggesting, he asked, that I go out into the streets like a prophet and communicate my insights about the danger of prophets? Do you remember the former politician with, with whom I argued at the prisoners' club, the one who emphasized the need for organizational resources and publishing activity? We would once again reconstitute a group with a theory and a publication. We would once again replace the concrete activity of thousands of people with the image of that activity communicated in words by a publication in our group. I've had specific experiences, and so have you, but these experiences are specific to our whole historical period. If I'm able to draw conclusions from them, so can all my contemporaries. I can't understand my experiences any other way. If I've had experiences no one else has, then I can't hope to communicate with anyone. One human being can no more demystify another than eat for another. But I haven't had experiences no one else had. The concrete activities of those around me prove this to me, just as my activities surely communicate the experiences I've had. Organizational resources and publications would only separate me from those with whom I want to communicate. I feel that Zednik is right. 
The strike that recently took place at the carton plant showed me that those workers must have had experiences and drawn conclusions similar to mine. Their concrete act communicated this to me. They didn't carry signs, nor proclaim a program, nor engage in any of the activities which seem so dear to you. They simply removed the, lo the local representatives of the local repressive apparatus directly, without a platform, without representatives. That done, we're ready to take our next concrete step. The politicians have been unmasked, not only for Zednik and me, but for all of us. At the plant, we listen to political speeches broadcast by the radio, but we don't act on them. We watch for the next step people like us will take elsewhere. I think Zednik is also right in considering the present ferment in many ways more profound than the uprising Louisa and Manuel taught me about. In that earlier event, repressed and self-repressed human beings suddenly came to life, but for a period that lasted less than 24 hours. Here the concrete steps have been small and undramatic, but those who came to life are still living. Can this ferment continue to spread without being caught in the webs of the politicians? Can we get past the spokesmen, coordinators, and organizers who extinguished the earlier struggle? My first impulse is to doubt it. So many people have never before become independent without provoking the concentrated resentment of those who wanted to rule over them. Such directionless and spontaneous activity has never before held its own against the blows dealt against it by organizational militants and their infallible leaders. Manuel and Luisa, in their descriptions of the events they both experienced, concur on one and only one detail. On the day when the generals attacked, the people ran into the streets on their own. The leaders ran behind and placed themselves on the front lines so as not to lose their followers. For an instant, it was the influential militants who were lost among the independent individuals whom they later claimed to have led. The first individuals at the barricades were not there under orders, but on their own. Each individual formulated his or her own task, and by carrying out that task, each implemented the project of the group, which was inseparable from the projects of each individual. Each coordinated and organized, not because he or she was the official coordinator or organizer, but because one and then another was closest to the problem that needed to be coordinated and organized. Individuals who have this capacity for self-directed activity during an insurrection are in all ways identical to the individuals with whom I work in the plant, with whom I share this city, with whom I inhabit this globe. Individuals who have such capacities during 24 hours have the capacity to appropriate human life and make it a project of the living. I've tried to give you some idea of the ferment which surrounds me. I've tried to describe my hopes as well as my apprehensions, and I've summarized Zednik's view of the prospects of this activity. It's perfectly clear to me that this activity has nothing in common with the journalistic activity to which you compared it. The type of activity which you chose has much in common with the activity of the politicians who lecture to us on the radio and in the newspapers. It has nothing in common with the actions and apprehensions of the people with whom I work in the carton plant. I resent the fact that you compare the ferment around me with your academic and journalistic activities. I think the two projects are not only different from each other, but are also hostile to each other. The projects you've chosen can only take place if my project fails. That's why I can't recognize myself in your choices or in your enthusiasms. I can understand the world you describe, the world in which you've so carefully steered toward your chosen alternative, only because I once stepped into that world. But I stepped out of that world long ago. I think you're right when you compare your chosen activities to those of the people we knew 20 years ago. Jasna described those people to us on the very day your letter came. During these past 20 years, I've changed, and you haven't. You've retained the commitments we shared 20 years ago. Jasna's account of the individuals you remember so fondly makes it clear to me that your chosen activities have a great deal in common with theirs, not with mine. After the luxurious meal she and Yara had prepared to celebrate the victory at their school, Jasna told us everything she knew about the present activities of those individuals. Jasna and Yara were waiting for me when I returned home from my third day of work. 
Jasna was anxious to read your letter, but Yara couldn't wait to tell me about the day's events. It's amazing how quickly the ferment spreads once a population regains creative initiative. Several students, among them Yara, began a campaign to oust the assistant head of the school, the person responsible for maintaining discipline among students as well as teachers. All the students stood quietly in the halls and let the head of the school know they wouldn't enter their classrooms until the disciplinarian resigned. They were joined by every single teacher. Even the head of the school gave a speech praising their demonstration. Jasna said she was profoundly moved by this speech. The disciplinarian resigned after having occupied her post for 20 years. She was undoubtedly a police agent, although ne neither Yara nor Jasna knew if she was actually in the pay of the police. Myrna came home soon after I did, and we all read your letter. After supper, Myrna asked Jasna when she had first met Jan and how long she had worked with him. Quote, he was hired right after the resistance, Jasna said. We worked together for three years, three unforgettable, wonderful years. I begged Jasna to start her story earlier, to tell us how and when she came to work at the carton plant. I started working there before the war, she told us. Among the people you knew, I was the first one there. I had just finished high school, and I'd always known I'd have to find a job the day after I finished high school. My parents both worked in factories. All the money they earned went to pay for the little house they had bought. I still lived there. My father was a horribly bossy man. I was afraid of him. I was like a servant in the house. After I started working, that changed. I went to several factories, but none of them had openings for someone without any experience. When I went to Mr. Zagad's office, he hired me even though I told him I didn't have any experience. He was really such a decent man. I still felt sorry for him. A few months after I started work, the war broke out and the city was occupied. I went to work every day and returned to my parents' home every evening. I wasn't much bothered by the war or the occupation at first. I knew something horrible had happened, but I didn't understand what it was. Then one day, during the second year of the war, my father brought home a man he worked with. He explained that the man was homeless and that he'd spend the night with us. Late that night, the police came to our house, broke our front door, and arrested the stranger as well as my father. They insulted my mother and me for hiding a Jew. Then they took both men away in a police car. I never saw my father again. I never learned if he was shot or sent to a concentration camp. A year later, a man from my mother's factory came to the house to tell me that my mother had died in an accident. I was sure she had committed suicide. She had talked about killing herself ever since my father was taken away. The war and the occupation became very meaningful to me. I hated it. I hated the occupiers because of what they had done to both my parents. But when I saw the occupiers in the streets, I was deathly afraid of them. I was, I still am, afraid of every person with authority, just as I had been afraid of my father. But people with authority aren't all the same. I was never afraid of Mr. Zagad. He was decent, and I've always been grateful for that. He heard about my mother's accident and told me to leave work for two weeks with pay. He even attended my mother's funeral. I've never understood why it was Mr. Zagad that you and the others turned against. Maybe it was wrong for him to have so much power over others, but that can't be the reason he was removed, since his successor had even greater power. But I'm running ahead. Either shortly before or shortly after my mother died, Titus Zabran was hired. He had returned from abroad just before the war started. During breaks, he would tell several of us about his earlier adventures, and I was hypnotized by his stories. He told about workers who had fought against a whole army, not for three days, but for three years, to defend their own popular government. I was amazed by Jasna's last statement. Is that how Titus understood that struggle, I asked? I'd never heard Titus say anything about that struggle, nor about his role in it. Of course I don't remember the actual stories he told me, Jasna said. I don't think I paid much attention anyway. Titus frightened me. I shared his hatred for the occupiers, but I was afraid of his constant talk about the need to arm and shoot. He seemed like the kind of person who would do everything he said he'd do. He reminded me of my father. I shared his hatred, but not his manner. 
I remember that I liked Mr. Zagad a lot better. I sensed that he hated the occupiers as much as Titus or I, but he didn't growl or show his teeth like a vicious dog. Whenever soldiers or inspectors came to the plant, he was always courteous. He wasn't slavish, just courteous. I interrupted Jasna to point out, if everyone had been so courteous, those occupiers would still be here. I know, Jasna said. I'm just telling you what I felt at the time. After the war ended, I felt that Titus had been right. Actually, I got to like him even before the war ended, mainly for his knowledge. He seemed to know everything. Luisa Nacholo was another person who seemed to know everything, but I disliked her when she first came to the plant. She was hired a few months after Titus. At this point, Yara had a question. Did you say you liked him because he was smart, but you disliked her because she was smart? Jasna laughed. You caught me, didn't you? No, I guess I'm not being altogether truthful. I was afraid of Titus, but I liked him at the same time. And I think I disliked Lu Luisa at first because I was jealous. In a way, I did dislike her because she was so smart. That was what made me jealous. I suppose I wanted to form a closer relationship with Titus, but he seemed to consider me a goose, especially after Luisa started working at the plant. Next to Luisa, I was a goose. She was so quick, so well-informed, so brilliant with her foreign accent and her sharp tongue. I knew I'd never live up to that woman. She had been married before, already had two daughters, and had nevertheless managed to familiarize herself with everything under the sun and seemed as independent as a bird. My mother had only had one daughter, and she had used me as her lifelong excuse for her abysmal ignorance. Yes, I envied Louisa, but I didn't even try to compete with her. I knew I'd only make myself more of a goose. I stopped thinking of forming a closer relationship with Titus. I told Jasna that Titus and Louisa had merely been friends, and that Louisa had lived with another man when we knew her. I think I knew that, Jasna said. I dimly remember having known that, but I lied to myself. Titus took no interest in me. I was hurt. I convinced myself that he ignored me because I was no Louisa, but I didn't spend too many hours feeling sorry for myself. I read novels instead. Later on, after I dropped the idea of falling in love with Titus, I got to like Louisa. But that was only a few months before we were all separated. I've always been sorry I never had a long talk with her. We were together for such a short time. I asked Jasna what she had done during the resistance. Nothing, she answered. Absolutely nothing. During the whole last year of the war, Titus had repeatedly asked me to attend meetings of the neighborhood resistance organization. Several times I promised to go. But when it came time to go to the meeting, my whole body started shaking. I had visions of police knocking at the door and dragging me away, along with Titus and all the others, to be shot or deported to a concentration camp. During all three days of the uprising, I locked myself into my house and I didn't come out again until several hours after I heard the last shot. I was deathly afraid. When it all ended, I was as glad that the shooting was over as I was that the occupation was over. The following day, I went back to the plant. Many of the people I had worked with had been killed by a single explosion when they were leaving the plant on the last day of the uprising. Several others had been killed in the fighting. That was when I met your brother, she told Myrna. They were all hired at the same time. Yarostan, Berenice, Adrian Pavershan, Claude Tamnich, Mark Glavny. I reminded Jasna that Mark was hired three years later. Three years, she exclaimed. I had forgotten. They were the happiest years of my life. I think I would have been content to remain on that job with those people. You, Titus, and Louisa were the most thoughtful, most intelligent people I've known. Recently, I've known mainly teachers. None of them are well-informed, as educated and perceptive as the three of you were. And your brother, Myrna, was the gentlest, warmest, most gener generous individual I had met or read about. He was the only one who never treated me as a goose. He paid attention to what I had to say, even though I usually contradicted myself. He took me seriously, even when I didn't take myself seriously. He sometimes had the most absurd ideas, like wanting to drag the machinery into the street and converting the factory into a dance hall. But he was never malicious. All his suggestions seemed like fun, and I was usually the main supporter of his crazy schemes. At that time, I also loved Vera and Adrian. 
They were so comical. I thought already then that they ought to be entertainers in a theater. I wasn't far wrong. Vera was so funny with all her stories about the crooked deals of what she called the ruling class. I was in stitches during half of every working day. I even liked that ox, Claude, mainly because I felt sorry for him. He was the only person there who was dumber than I. Yes, Mark was the last, and I liked him least. He was fresh out of high school and such a clod. I can't believe what he is now. He always spoke with the self-assurance of a spoiled brat, but couldn't do a thing on his own. I constantly had to show him what to do, and almost every day I repaired something he had ruined. I don't think any of those people would have been remarkable by themselves. Something strange happened during those three years. We were all deeply affected by something, perhaps by each other. I think those years made us all what we became. I know that Vera would have quieted down and become like everyone else if Titus and Louisa hadn't continually encouraged her, and if Titus hadn't used his influence to keep her from being fired. You, Yaristan, would have been a completely different person if you hadn't met Louisa. The only one who didn't change during those years was your brother, Myrna. I think Yan was the only one of us who would have led the same life he had led. I told Jasna you considered your brief contact with that group of people the central experiences in your life, and asked her what she thought extraordinary about those people or that situation. Her answer gave me some insight into the life choices you've made. I've never in my life experienced such a turnabout, except when I was arrested, she said. I went to college later on, but I didn't learn nearly as much as I learned during those three years. The real university I attended was the Carton plant, after you, Yan, and the others were hired. I knew already then that none of the people in our group would spend their lives in the Carton plant, or in any other kind of factory work, except possibly Yan. We were simply transformed by that experience. I asked her what she thought had happened to us during those three years. It's something I've never tried to put into words, she said. Not that it was so mysterious. When I attended college several years later, I knew that none of my fellow students would ever go back to factory jobs, no matter what their social background was. In the university, this was simply taken for granted. In our group, this wasn't ever stated, but it seemed just as obvious to me. I'm surprised you're still working in a factory. I was wrong about you. I told her I had changed and reminded her that Louisa, too, was still working in a factory. I'm not surprised about Louisa, she said. I wouldn't have expected her to undergo the same changes. She was different. She's the one who set it all off. I don't think Titus by himself would have had such an impact. I think it was the presence of Louisa that was so explosive, that caused such profound transformations in the people around her. I wasn't the first to be affected by her. Unfortunately, I was one of the last. I think you and Vera were the first. Louisa obviously didn't have the same effect on everyone. You and Vera were affected so differently. Everyone was affected differently. It wasn't only what Louisa said that affected us, although that too was exciting. I still remember the story she told us about workers she'd known who hadn't only fought in a resistance like ours, but had gone from the barricades to their factories to lock out their bosses and install their own friends in all the managerial offices. Those stories were exciting, but only as a topic of conversation, as stories. I heard them as fairy tales. That alone wouldn't have transformed me. What transformed us was how she acted, her manner, her behavior, her personality. Even if her stories weren't true, if workers had never done what she'd said they had done, Louisa made us all feel that she was determined to do exactly that, and right in our plant. From the very first day she came to the plant, she started asking where the materials came from, what was to be done with them in the plant, where the products were sent afterwards. Maybe she only asked those questions so as to familiarize herself with every aspect of the plant's activity, but she made us all feel we knew infinitely more about the process than Mr. Zagad. She made us feel that Mr. Zagad was superfluous and that we could run the plant much better without him. She communicated her impatience to us. With everything she said and did, she seemed to be asking the rest of us what we were waiting for. She made us feel like cowards for not doing all the things that had done by the workers she described. This had a strange effect on all of us, and first of all on you. I admitted having been affected by Louisa the very first time I met her. 
You weren't only affected, you were completely transformed. You became just like her. I think Louisa could have left the plant a few months after you came, and you would have exerted the same influence on the rest of us. You acquired the same self-assurance, the same impatience. You made us feel like cowards for not going ahead with all those schemes. You weren't her disciple, but her exact replica. You gave the impression that you had actually lived all the experiences she had narrated to us, and that you were as determined as she to make them happen here. I could see you change from one day to the next. No one else was so completely transformed by Louisa. Vera was also profoundly affected, but she didn't become another Louisa. I'm convinced that it was only because of Louisa that Vera became such an entertainer, such a radio, as you used to call her. Louisa's mere presence provoked Vera. It was as if Vera felt compelled to, comp to compete with Louisa every minute of the day, as if she had to outdo Louisa in intelligence, knowledge, and even self-confidence. I could almost see the changes Vera underwent. She wasn't that talkative when she first came, and she did do her job. But after listening to Louisa's stories for only a month, Vera started to tell her own stories. At first she bombarded us with statistics about the output for which workers were responsible and the income we were paid. She must have spent her nights rummaging through government publications and official documents so as to spend her days telling us about the financial dealings of bankers and factory owners. The statistics were appreciated by Titus, but they didn't go over very well with the rest of us. We still found Louisa's observations more exciting. So Vera started collecting all kinds of anecdotes, hair-raising accounts of crook deals. She was determined not to be outdone by Louisa. Three or four times she even told us the details of major scandals several days before the newspapers reported them. And Adrian, who had worshipped Vera since high school, became something like her straight man. Vera would make a grandiose statement, and Adrian would leap in with detailed documentation. Sometimes they even acted out the scenes of a recent scandal. Do you think they'd ever have done those things in normal circumstances? I was affected, too. I was swept along by all the excitement. Even Mark was affected, though he was in the carton plant so briefly before we were arrested. Inept as he was in everything he did, he treated himself as someone who knew more about workers running their own plants than anyone else, even Louisa. Every other day he described a complex scheme. He figured out how many people were going to supply each other with raw materials, electricity, housing, and everything else under the sun. Louisa seemed to admire him for the effort he put into these schemes. I was surprised she didn't see through him. He was nothing but a conceited boy trying desperately to prove that he was better than the rest of us. He may have been intelligent, but since it was I who ran behind him repairing what he had ruined, I wasn't impressed by his abilities. Claude was affected too, but in a strange way. He had such a one-track mind. His single response to Luis's impatience and to Vera's exposures was to want to liquidate obstacles, liquidate enemies. He even spoke of liquidating Mr. Zagad. Claude seemed to think already then that all our excitement was only a preparation for the day when our group would order him to carry out his liquidations. I don't think I knew this at the time. I must have realized it when I saw him years later. What I felt at the time was that he loomed above us like a threatening cloud. Whenever he spoke, he turned our enthusiasm into something frightening. He made all our fun seem like a prelude to something horrible. I interrupted Jasna's narrative and told her I thought she was exaggerating the magnitude of Luis's influence. In my view, it wasn't only the experiences we shared at the carton plant that made those people what they later became. The traits they exhibited when Jasna knew them must already have been integral parts of their personalities.